0: Hello and welcome to a Hoover Institution panel discussion entitled The Human Rights Violation of Women That Rarely Gets Discussed. Mary Wambui, the founder and director of the Shelter Children's Rehabilitation Center in Kenya, and Hoover Research Fellow Ion Hersey Alley take on the deeply disturbing topic of female genital mutilation. Hoover Research Fellow Alice Hill is the moderator. It was recorded on April 11th, 2018. Now- Unbelievably to me, as I did a little bit more research in this area, Congress came to agreement that female genital mutilation uh, was wrong and should be criminalized in 1996. So uh, we had agreement on that issue, uh, but unfortunately we have had very few prosecutions under that uh, law. Twenty-six states followed suit and have also criminalized (coughs) female genital mutilation. It is recognized internationally as a violation of human rights, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child, but it's still widespread. Estimates are that three million girls each year undergo this procedure. Estimates are that we have over 500,000 women and girls in the United States who have undergone this procedure. Now, there are disputes about the numbers, simply because this is something that often happens in private, and there's no visible way to determine to the public that it's occurred. As Christy mentioned, we had an opportunity to meet with uh, Mary and Anya before. I want to really turn it over to them, because uh, you will learn from them how widespread it is and the challenges we all have in trying to combat this. So the very first question I want to ask is the very basic one. And I'll turn to you first, Anya. What is this?
1: Right. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Christy, for doing this. Uh, Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Mary, uh, for being the reason why this is done and for your activism. Um, What is FGM? So the acronym stands for Female Genital Mutilation, and this acronym was given uh, to this practice by the World Health Organization once upon a time where I come from, it's not considered mutilation, it's considered to be a purification. Um, What it basically means is that the genitals of the girl child are cut, mutilated in some way, and there are varying degrees. And the reason why it's done, it can be religious, it can be cultural or traditional, but either way it is to limit the libido, the sexual libido of the female, and uh, to control it. Now the four types that are recognized by the United Nations World Health Organization and UNICEF are type one where the clitoris of the girl is either, um, they call it nicking. The tip of the clitoris is removed, the child bleeds, the parents in the community are happy. They consider this child from that part, from then on, as purified. (coughs) The second type is one where a larger part of the clitoris is cut off and the inner labia are also shaved off and they may or may not be sewn. And then type three and type four become even more severe where with type three, the outer labia are also cut. More of the clitoris is cut and uh, the vagina, the opening of the vagina is sewn to leave a small hole for urination and another one for menstruation. And then finally, number four, which is really everything is scraped off as much as can be scraped off so that when a child who has undergone that opens her legs, you can barely see genitals at all. And various communities across the world, it's uh, the number, the official number now is that 300 million women have undergone this. So of those 300 million, you have you know, various communities that practice one type or the other.
0: And how does that differ, I'll ask you, Mary, in terms of uh, by country, by region, by tribe? Is there a difference in the practices, as you know? And perhaps you could share what your experience in Kenya has been as you've attempted
2: to help young girls avoid this. Thank you. My name's Mary Wambui Mwirore. I'm the director of an organization called Shelter Children's Home. Uh, It's exciting to be here and to share with you this very great heartbreaking practice that is carried on women. Um, In Kenya, we in Africa, different tribes will practice will take one practice and um, I want to talk about Kenya. So when I was growing up in my region, my tribe practiced the first one, but cutting of the critteries a little bit deeper, so not you know not doing the whole thing, but just cutting and that happened to me also and um, in the other part of the western parts of Kenya, they do the incision you know they they remove and you know destroy completely and uh, in the other part of northern Kenya, they will do the one that they clear so that they can stitch to maintain the virginity of the girls and to make them pure and to um, they say that this girl now becomes marriageable because. Everybody will refer to that girl as um, a clean girl, uh, a well-mannered girl, and uh, the traditions have to be upheld. So um, let's take my case. So at 12 years, I am passing from childhood to become an adult, and this is my adolescent coming up, and now, it is believed, and it it is a custom that at that age, all the age, all girls of that age, must be circumcised. So that now, as Ayana says, um, you have no desire to to see a man, or your libido is minimized. So we taken through the circumcision, and the whole village corrects girls together and uh, they say this is the circumcision day. And so they are brought in one place, one, one, one homestead, and uh, they're going to stay there after circumcision. And so there is this lady circumciser who is very honored in the village and very respected because um, supposedly she's the one who changes the lives of the girls to become honorable women. And so we were there very early in the morning, They put you in cold, freezing water. That's And this year they give you, because they don't give you anything else. And they are using a a knife. I I would say I felt like it was a crude knife. I don't think it was very sharp. So it's very painful. And um, and they do it very fast. Then there is no medicine. There is no painkiller. So the next thing they do is there is some leaves from the trees that they are said to be the medicine part of it, and so they come and tie those leaves with a string, and you are supposed to stay with that for like two weeks. So that's the Kikuyu community. The Maasai community do that, but different parts of Kenya practice different uh, type of the cut.
0: So Is this a religious practice, a cultural practice?
1: Where, does it, where is it traced to?
0: How did it come about?
1: Oh, People trace it all the way back to the pharaohs. So it is probably one of the oldest practices uh, of humanity. Um, there are communities that base the practice on religion. Uh, I was raised a Muslim, and my family believed that it was um, the Prophet Muhammad who recommended that or obligated uh, children to be done, uh, to be circumcised. When I became educated in Islam, I could not find any, I couldn't find any um, uh, order that uh, girls should be circumcised or girls should be purified in the Quran. I found a hadith and if you know anything about Islam, you will know that the Prophet Muhammad is the moral guide of all Muslims and that he left a legacy of traditions or sayings. And some of those sayings are controversial and some of those sayings are not controversial. So uh, the only uh, saying that I found on female genital mutilation was among the controversial ones. So if you look at Muslim majority countries where female genital mutilation is practiced, You have some people using religious arguments to say, look, it's never been recommended because it's not in the Quran and it's not in the uncontroversial hadith, but you also have people arguing and saying, it doesn't matter, even if it's in the controversial, then you you have to do it on religious grounds. The Muslim Brotherhood Movement, which is an international movement, promoted the practice Uh, not only in Egypt, but worldwide. They've taken it as far as Malaysia and Indonesia, who never had that practice before, and now Malaysian and Indonesian men will not marry, uh, many of them who have come to adopt this, they will not marry uh, girls who have not been purified. So some people have religious arguments for it, some don't. I think in Kenya, Mary will know this better than I do, uh, it's probably more of a tradition or a cultural practice and not a religious practice.
0: Is that uh, the case, Mary,
2: Uh, that it's more a cultural practice in your country? In Kenya, it's more, I would say, 100% cultural, nothing to do with religion. These are traditions that have been upheld. Um, Like now, because I'm working more in the Maasai community, they have held this tradition. And it is done at early age. And as they do it, sometimes the Maasai girls, at eight years, nine and 10, they are circumcised and married off. Because you, you we all know that, or maybe have heard, that Maasai, they marry off their girls to old men at the early ages of eight, nine, and 10. So it's it's a tradition. They are harmful, we call them barbaric cultural practices. And to call it barbaric cultural
1: practices, to call it female genital mutilation, all that, that is the Western way. That's how it's perceived locally, that it's Westerners who are coming in and they're taking a tradition of ours and they're putting a negative label on it. But in you know, my grandmother is the one who had it done to me. And if I try and share with you her viewpoint, her viewpoint is it's been done to me, I've had it done to all my children, it's been going on for generations and generations in our past. And the purpose of doing it is to purify the child. Yes, it's to limit her sexual libido, but it's also the only way a girl can get married. So in so many of these cultures, especially in the Somali culture, there's no way you're going to find a husband unless you've undergone the practice.
2: Could and you sh- oh Yes, I can add to that. Uh, also, if you are not circumcised, the village no. So you are marked, you know, you are segregated, you know, that family has, uh, in my, my language, they used to call it kerego. So it is a very intimidating word. So everybody, even boys, they'll be saying, oh, she's not circumcised. And then it becomes, you know, you can't pass, you can't do anything with anybody because you are kept alone. So because of that, everybody wanted to do it. You want to grow. You want to be respected in the in the community. So I think because of that, the tradition went on and on because everybody perceived that that's the only way. Until now, we can see it's harmful. It's 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 um it's very dangerous to the to the children and you know everybody who is who it's practiced on.
0: So I think uh, Mary, uh, Mary's uh, experience with the the shaming from the community, yeah. was that something that was also true for you as you were growing up uh, for girls who did not uh, undergo this procedure?
1: Yes. So the Somali word for it is kinterleish, the one who has the clitoris, and that then you're seen as filthy, you're ostracized. The only difference is, with uh, at least in my time when I was in Somalia, uh, the... Uh, the cutting took place, or the purification as they call it, it it took place at a much younger age, so at the age of four or five. I was five years old when I was circumcised, and it's getting now, it's getting to be younger and younger. I also want to point out that um, there is a difference between rural areas and uh, more urban settings, and the reason why I want to point that out is, in rural areas, it's much more um, glaring. You have more children who die because the tools used to cut the genitals are razor blades, sharp rocks, um, scissors. There's no anesthesia. And you would think that as, group, you know, as communities modernize and they move to the cities, that they're going to shed this practice. No, now they're taking the children to hospitals and doctors educated in Western medicine are using anesthesia to, have, to perform the surgery or the operation. And to make it worse, it's not only when you move from the rural areas of Kenya and Somalia to the cities, but also when people who have this practice and who've been practicing it for ages, they come to the United States, they come to Western societies, they bring those traditions within it. So it carries on, and that is the reason why there is an estimate, a controversial estimate, that we have 500,000 girls who may have undergone it. I think the number is much bigger, but that's just FYI. (laughs) So um,
0: we know that uh, this is happening on a widespread basis. In the literature, uh, the studies of this, they have identified that girls have mental health challenges as a result of this. The stress um, and the procedure itself can lead to depression
1: and uh, other challenges. Mm -hmm.
0: Is that your experience, that that is what can occur?
1: Absolutely. So there's the the physical damage that the procedure does, again, depending on who does it and where it's done. And the physical damage can be, I mean, it can be as extreme as death. Trying to cut off the entire clitoris of a child with a razor blade leads to the death of many, many children. And it leads to the paralysis of children. It leads to all sorts of health problems. One of the biggest health problems is the development of fistulas that cause incontinency after childbirth. It is problems with menstruation, problems with urinating. So there's that physical, painful damage that is a daily reminder of uh, this procedure. But then there's also the mental damage. And I think, Mary, you described this very beautifully. Where you talk about how the female child is first of all to she's, she has to believe that sex is filthy, that she is the source of arousal and desire for men, and that this has to be done to her to limit that. And even after that's done, there is this talk, constant talk of the child uh, the female being a source of you know uh, Oh, you know, she's a whore, promiscuous, bad. So th- there's, there's that psychological damage where you are reduced as a human being to basically your hymen. Mary, is this what you find with the uh, young girls that you work with?
2: Yes. Um, even now that we are trying to do a lot of um, awareness to them and to their families and to the community around the Masais, you still find the girls themselves they still want to do it because they've been brought up knowing that if you don't do this, then you cannot achieve, and then you'll be, um, and you know you'll be like, I would say, a prostitute because they, you are made to believe that if you are not circumcised, then you'll be looking for boys, you know, around, and then at an early age, you find that the girls are very psychologically, you know, traumatized about not being circumcised. We've, you know, human rights activists have introduced the rites of passage where we, we are training girls and taking them through a course for a week so that now they graduate and we say, that's like circumcision. But when you go down to the community, these girls still go back and they are circumcised secretly. And everyone now is thinking what is the best way that we can now make these girls to maintain that you don't have to be circumcised to be what you want to be. And then in the Maasai community, circumcision also means marriage because you cannot get circumcised and go to school. So you find that psychologically, the girls are withdrawn. You know, they tend to stay in small groups of the Maasai community, even a children's home, like ours where we have 151 kids and about 74 girls, you find that they are always together. They they don't think, because again, they don't know whether these others are circumcised. And if they come and they are not circumcised, they still feel out. You know, they, they, they don't fit with the circumcised ones that we have rescued and they are uncircumcised. So they are lost there in the middle. And this girl who their self-esteem, as they grow, they are always crossed, they are always and sometimes they don't even do well in school because they are not interacting with the other children to know or to get other information so for us we find it very difficult and uh, actually praying and trusting that we can en- enact laws that will bring an end to this female genital mutilation practice
0: what has been done at the government level in Kenya to combat this problem
2: a lot has been done policies have been made and very many human rights activists institu- um, organizations are on the ground trying to work on it but remember this practice is private and it's done it's not it's done inside you know so you can do it in your own house so as much as it's not possible to know who is doing it and where in uh, in our in our area we've People we call volunteer children officers. So these are people who have volunteered to, to, to be uh, the eyes of the government and the communities about what is happening to the children. And so, what do they do, they are putting an ear to what is happening around with the girls and the children, whether the children are being abused. So, at that point, sometimes they can learn that there are these girls being prepared for female genital mutilation. And so they report that to the police, and then the police go down and rescue the kids. They are rescued with a gun from the communities because the communities are very wild when you when it comes to interfering with their traditions.
0: So uh, I know that your foundation, you have worked hard on uh, getting law enforcement uh, here in the United States, as well as improving the laws uh, in the
1: Netherlands. Could you tell us about that? Um, so. My foundation and before, my activism, let me just put it this way. Um, I see it in three different ways. One is education, that is to educate the wider society on what female genital mutilation is, who does it, why it's done, and all the rest of it. And then there is education on the communities that are affected by this, trying to explain to young women, you don't, ha- and to mothers, you don't have to carry this tradition on It's bad, it's harmful, give it up, or join us in our activism. Um, The second part of my activism is to convince uh, the American government, and when I was in Holland, the Dutch government, to criminalize it. In Holland, it it is a criminal offense, and you could uh, get up to 15 years in prison, which in the Netherlands is a very severe uh, criminal act. In the United States, we know now that 26 states have passed laws that uh, explicitly criminalize female genital mutilation. We're working on the others. The one challenge, and this is the third part of my activism, which I really find the most daunting, is enforcement. We've had only one, there's one ongoing prosecution and maybe one or two prosecutions that have been started and never went anywhere. And the reason why enforcement is so difficult is because there is no detection system. If you had a barbaric practice like this one, where families thought it was very important to cut off the tip of your nose or the tip of your ear or something that is, you know, manifest, it would have been so much easier to deal with it. But this is between the legs of the girl, and these are children. And the children to which it happens, they are raised to believe that it's something good. And when it was done to me, my family celebrated me. It was probably one of the few memories where I got positive attention, and that's where I come from when it's done, when a child is circumcised or purified, she is celebrated the way, say, a Jewish community celebrates bar mitzvah. So with all that given, it's extremely difficult to have a detection system, and what I'm advocating for is that we can talk about this and we can learn about it until you know we, we, we fully understand what it is, but without a detection mechanism, there's nev- we are never going to enforce any policies that are meaningful and that can eradicate this terrible practice. What would be a way to improve detection? Well, in rich societies like ours, like the United States of America, children go to pedi- pediatricians. The government requires that you take your child to a pediatrician. I've just had a baby. My baby has been to the pediatrician. What? Uh, he's not six months yet, and I think he's already been there eight or nine times. Uh, <laughs> and, and I don't have a choice. I have to do it. And I think, if we first of all, if we educated all pediatricians on what it is, and empowered them to look you know you're you're examining the child the child's eyes ears breathe respiratory system etc it wouldn't hurt if the pediatrician were given the authority to look and report and if parents know that this detection is taking place you could make it into an annual practice until the girls are 18. if parents know that this is happening they would then know that they either run the risk of being prosecuted and perhaps even losing the child or dropping the tradition. And I know from so many you know, Somali parents that if they were given that choice, they would think it's a terrible choice, but they would opt to keep their children. And they would say to members of their own community, well, I haven't circumcised my daughter because I don't want to be sent to prison and I don't want my child to be taken away from me. So I think rich societies like ours, if there was enough political will and if there was an an intense enough outcry against the practice, we could eradicate it. And
0: one of the uh, interesting things I learned is that with the increase in immigration in recent decades the estimate of the occurrence here in the United States has grown significantly. Again, it's hard to verify these numbers, but assuming that the practice comes with the community and those who are entering the United States, that it is repeated here. uh, And I think you have cited a figure of 19,000 in Pennsylvania alone. Uh, So this is a uh, challenge that um, we are not protecting these girls
1: uh, well, look at the united nations numbers the united nations has a list of countries where the practice occurs and it tells you which countries do it's almost 100% egypt somalia eritrea uh, sudan some of these countries the number of you know the number of girls who have been mutilated and up to 98% so if you come from Sudan, or you come from Egypt, or Eritrea, and then in the Kenyan tribes, some of them are also you know, as high as over 90%. West African countries, some of the Middle Eastern countries. Again, I mentioned Malaysia and Indonesia. You have this list, and you know that when communities are coming from those countries to settle here, they're not just going to shed their deeply held, deeply ingrained practices at the airport. It's, it's not how humanity works. So if we really care about putting in place a detection system, we would start with those numbers. If 100% of Somali girls in Somalia have been cut, then there's a very high likelihood that over 90% of the Somali community, girls from Somalia in the United States, will have either undergone or about to undergo it.
0: In Kenya, uh, has there been interest in prosecuting this through a criminal justice system? Or is this really left more to the communities to resolve themselves?
2: We are heading to that. But currently, the problem is that there are traditions. And so every community is trying to uphold their own tradition. And so it becomes difficult for people to penetrate those traditions, because they would think you are coming to destroy. Uh, and as Ian says, you we, the, you have been westernized. You know, you've been brainwashed. Now you are coming to destroy our traditions. So it's becoming difficult. At some point, it looked like it has gone down. But all of a sudden, you know, we realize that you know there is a lot of FGM going on from one community to the other. You know, in in Kenya, you will find like the Kisi uh, in Western part of Kenya, they are like 98% of them are circumcised. You know, they are practicing it. You know, the Kikuyus, about 75% are practicing it. So you find, you know, and I thought this is the time that people have gone into the region because in Kenya, some religions will not allow things to happen, th- those things to happen. But you find people are in religion, but they're still doing the circumcision behind. The the back of everyone.
0: So for us who are learning more about this, mm-hmm. uh, what advice would you give us to uh, how we can help stop uh, this
1: very serious human rights violation? Yeah. Well, first of all, there is the awareness. You become aware that this is taking place, and it's not only taking place in faraway Africa and you know, the Middle East and South Asia, etc. it's taking place here in the United States of America. So there's that awareness. Then please join us in the campaign to criminalize it. Mm-hmm. And finally, please join us in the campaign to establish some form of detection, uh, to not just criminalize, but create uh, the opportunity to then catch some of these criminals. Um, in uh, Western countries, one of the things that parents know is that you know you, you can't have you can't cut the genitals of your child and send her to school the next day, so you wait until the summer vacation and it's called it's called the vacation cutting vacation purification. Mm-hmm. You take the young children back to the countries of origin if possible or you just do it on your kitchen table in the in the united kingdom in um, Italy, in the Netherlands, some of the reports that emerge are these kitchen table cuttings during the vacation period. If you become aware of this, then I think its it just takes the political will and a public outrage to push for change. And especially in a world that's globalizing as fast as we are globalizing, with a number of immigrants from these countries coming in large numbers i think it is absolutely wrong to take human rights and dub them white or uh, western or because that is one of the ways of stopping people from doing anything is to be you'll be called a racist for fighting female genital mutilation because you are attacking a tradition uh, of the colored people and i think one of the Perhaps the best way to, to get back, and this is to say, no, human rights are universal. They have nothing to do with race or religion or ethnicity, and you care about uh, these young children, little girls, then um, it's, please join us in this campaign and uh, in this activism. Mary, would
0: you have any additional advice for us on how we can assist in
2: stopping this practice? Uh, in Kenya, it's more. Of awareness and um, you know sensitizing people on time change because this is not the old time when we didn't know what was happening and uh, trying to empower those communities you know like us we try to empower the Maasai communities because the women have no say and so they cannot fight against the this thing the, the early marriages and the FGM and also to try and force our, our women leaders to enforce it in parliament to become a law so that um, if it's criminalized, then everybody will, will know I don't have to do this because this will happen to me. But it is difficult because it's, it's a family thing. You know, it's not like a school where we are saying you change the rules of this school. It's something that people's mindset have to be changed and uh, they have to it, it, it will take time, but supporting us to do it, supporting the human rights organizations, and supporting the communities that are helping to do would 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 be a great idea.
0: Uh, we're going to open this up to questions, but I'll share uh, uh, another uh, thing that I have learned in working on human trafficking. It's a similar problem in that we have very (coughs) high estimates of the number of trafficked persons worldwide and including in the United States. But we have a very low level of prosecutions. But one thing that we've learned is uh, with education, particularly education of those that are most likely to encounter the victims. So in this case, the doctors, uh, and that would be true of trafficking victims who are often traumatized and have sometimes been physically abused, but law enforcement also, uh, so that they, when they encounter a person who have been trafficked, they recognize the signs because just as these children and women probably aren't raising their hands and saying, I was a victim, uh, trafficking Trafficking victims often don't self-identify. They've been emotionally uh, traumatized by their experience. Uh, But training of law enforcement and those who encounter the victims helps uh, increase the number of prosecutions and arrests. So that's something that a public awareness, events like this, but even more, uh, continuing the discussion outside these rooms can help. Uh, generate the knowledge widespread that this is occurring and that there are things we can do to help stop it. Uh, But I want to open up the floor uh, to those of you who may have questions. Uh, Mary and uh, Anya have a lot to share. So uh, we have just begun to touch the surface here, yes.
3: Hi, thank you. I am curious in the states where it has been criminalized. If you can talk about um, the way in which that's been done—not the the political process—but like, what does the criminalization look like? How is the law structured? Because I would imagine one of the difficulties for enforcement would be a matter of jurisdiction. Like, if somebody is going away to have it done and then returning to Minnesota, and it's discovered by a doctor later how is it prosecuted if it's a thing that was done in a place where it was lawful and then the child just comes back with their parents and this seems like evidence of child abuse you know under some laws but also a question of how you prove where it was done and um, and how the the jurisdiction would be claimed
1: so my foundation is right now going you know we have one example where it's almost come to prosecution Uh, it is not criminalized in Michigan yet. We're on the way, I think we're almost there if it hasn't happened while I was in maternity leave. And, uh, but it is criminal as FGM in Minnesota. And we were contacted by an individual who knew that this was happening uh, and that there is a doctor in Michigan who does this. And we called the FBI and after a while, we found out that the FBI actually followed up on our tip and they went and uh, charged this particular doctor with sexual abuse, with trafficking a child between states, with, not with FGM because Michigan at, the point, at that point didn't have, and I think still it's, it's almost closed. So that is one reason why it's very important to have all 50 states adopt one, you know, the uniform law that this is a criminal, uh, criminal act.
0: Yes, Liz, yes. So I'm you know I, I've known about this for a while and of course I can imagine this being something done to women by men but I also am hearing from both of you and am familiar that it's actually women doing this to women and mothers and grandmothers but I wonder you know it really is going to take and I'm surprised at how few men are in this room it's really gonna take you know, both genders to kind of help make a difference. And so I wonder what strategy, tr- strategies in particular you use to try and change the minds of people in
2: Africa that are practicing this for the men in particular. Um, would you like to answer that? We realized that um, it was not only enough to sensitize. You know, Before, human rights activists have always dealt with you know, the women, so when we do um, sensitization workshops and we call the women. But we've realized that we have to do it for both men and women, because like in the Maasai community, the women have no say. So even if the women are aware of it and they agree to it, they can make a decision in the family. So I know it will take time, but we are trying to even sensitize the, the, the role-making people in the parliaments. Because as the rules are being enacted, there is a man inside there. Maybe they are, they are against, you know, they, they are not. They are not for the, the eradication of it. So we need to train each one, each everyone, starting with the boys in the home. So when, for me, when we do the sensitization, even for the girls in the in the institution, we do it for both boys and girls, so that this this boy will grow knowing that this is. Uh, this, this is the wrong thing to do. And then maybe they will help in, there are young people who have come up now and they are doing uh, awareness together with the other people so that they, when it's a man saying, then it becomes, oh, even men uh, want this, this thing to change. But without that, it's going to be an uphill task and we might never come to a complete stop of FGM.
1: It's women doing it to women. It's women passing on the tradition. It's women who are way more motivated in getting this, um, you know, to hide it, to, to have it happen than men in where I come from. Yes. Um, one way I think of involving men, so my father, once he got an education, a Western education, he came to understand what kind of harm it caused. He told my mother using tradition and religion, I will curse you to hell if you have my children, my daughters, uh, mutilated. It's my grandmother who did it behind my mother's back. So, one, but, then, but then you have to listen to her reasoning. Her reasoning is there is no man who's going to marry any one of them once they come of age because men in our tradition, culture, religion, they favor virgins. And the only way you can ensure that you have a virgin on your wedding night is to have this girl whose genitals has been sewn. you know that no one has been there before you so when it comes to educating men i think one way to get through to them would be to say we desire all human being instead of just uh, obsessing with this virginity i think that is one opening and when i was in holland you know with the education campaigns when boys participated the conversation started. I don't think it went anywhere because they're allowed to go philandering, whereas the girls are supposed to be virgins. But I think once you train both boys and girls, little boys, very important. I have two little boys, so I know how important it is to civilize them. Uh, once you start the civilization process for boys, you've got to simply make them understand that girls are fellow human beings with equal rights and equal uh, desires. And I think. That might, in fact, speed up the change that we're all seeking.
0: Yes, Megan there. Yes.
1: And there's the only one man He has raised his Oh, he's raised his hand? Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. You
0: mentioned um, the three different levels of mutilation. And I can't help but think that the third level, the stitching and the closing of the vagina, that must create a secondary medical emergency when they do get married and have intercourse, what happens then? It, it,
1: are they in peril all over again? Oh yeah, it's the, that's the whole point. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, weddings, uh, before a wedding took place, uh, some of the brides would have to go to hospital to be cut open, because you, know, you couldn't do this the natural way. And for, another, another way of doing it was, for a man to be a real man, he has to go through that. So the bride is pretty much, you know, spends the first 14 days of her married life as a patient having to go through this pain, whether she's cut in hospital or she's cut by her own uh, husband. So it's not it's not just the brutality and the barbarism of when you undergo the procedure as a child, but it follows you through. And a lot of women after childbirth with these last two procedures, um, They then have to deal with scarring, with the fistulas, with incontinency, and and there are large communities of women who people, nobody wants to go anywhere near them because they're incontinent, and they're smelly, and it just has, it's secondary and tertiary and all sorts of really, once you understand the consequences, you're going to ask yourself, why does anybody do this?
0: Another question.
3: Um, I do do outcomes research here at Stanford in medicine and pediatrics and and, and that. And one of the things I was thinking about when you talked to the pediatricians, I think that's the absolute best way to go, unless the doctors, all of them. Uh, But I worry about, have you considered that once that gets out that, oh, I can't do this because the doctor's going to report it, Mm -hmm. they just simply stop taking the kids to the doctor after a certain age. Yeah. You don't need to do that. So you—you you might a couple of things. You might push that procedure, the purification, yeah. out to when the, the, the girl is older, and uh, you know. So so, and then you might have it as an analogy would be the back alley abortion. So I, I so, worry, have, have you talked to doctors about that and consent?
1: Yes, so when I was in Holland and we were trying to find the best uh, legislation of how to cover this, the education, the you know, enforcement, all, all of this came up, where you would say, first of all, the doctor said, I'm not a policeman, I'm not going to uh, turn in, uh, you know, report my patients uh, and my patients' parents to, uh, to the government, so there's that one problem to deal with. And I think that has to be taken into legislation process the second one is if you really do want pediatricians to keep doing this then you have to make sure that the parents are obligated to take the child or that they know that they're obligated by the government to take the child up to the age of 18 to the doctors i think it's also very important what happens in elementary and high schools so that teachers know you know have you been I mean, you have all sorts of health controls. Have you been to the doctor this year? Have you had? Have you? Did you go for your shots? Did you go for this or that? And then knowing that there are particular children at risk, that the community and that is the government institutions, federal, local, state, uh, the doctors the school community, that everyone is on the same page and everyone is well educated that this thing is going on and it has to be and, and you know just because as human beings when you when immigrants come they, they reside in clusters in places. So I know that the Somali community for instance favors places like Minnesota, Minneapolis, uh, in some Texan towns, it's almost all Egyptian in some Michigan towns you know where the Kenyans in uh, the Kenyan community is. So in many ways, it's very easy for a particular, uh, you know, city or neighborhood, for for the authorities to know this is a place where FGM is at high risk and to educate uh, those involved. Right now, I mean, right now, there's almost zero awareness in the United States of this problem, almost zero. But I think once it becomes widespread, once, it beca- once the, all Americans come to understand this is something that happens in, on US soil and we don't want it to happen ever again, I think that is when you start enlisting the help of teachers, pediatricians, doctors, police, all the rest of
0: it. One of the things I mentioned is uh, with human trafficking that awareness changes the perception and the understanding that it's occurring. Uh, And I remember a uh, sheriff of a Texas county uh, saying that uh, he did not believe that human trafficking was occurring where he lived. He just, that's something that happens overseas. It's not something that happens in the United States, and it's not really a problem I need to worry about. Uh, He then went through the training, uh, and to hear him speak afterwards, it was... Oh my gosh, this is happening everywhere. It's happening uh, in the brothels. Most of the prostitutes have had some trafficking occurring to them. It's happening with uh, immigrants who are coming, crossing the border, and then are forced into labor. They think they're being smuggled across, and then they're being forced in. I think very similar uh, occurrence uh, would be observed. If we were simply to increase the education, based on what I've learned here today, yeah. uh, that doctors, uh, school schools uh, with a child who may be complaining of pain, be aware that this could have been a risk, yeah. uh, we would have uh, a lot more opportunity to uh, maybe capture it after the fact, but increase the sense that this should not occur, and it is child abuse. Yeah. Uh, so another question. That's how I, uh, how I view it. Yeah. So yes, here.
2: Thank you. I think you, you, you are doing the things which is really benefit for many kids. Uh, especially girls. Uh, I have two questions. First, uh, I would like to know in Kenya, for example, is there, except uh, the local organization like yours, is there any uh, Western organ- uh, NGO who work also there? What's the challenge, most, uh, you know, challenge thing for them to to start their work there? Uh, the second question, I followed Aya, your Twitter, I would like to know, for your uh, two of your organization or foundation, is there any annual report on the issues? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is a research pro- group to do this, that will be help the public to know better about these issues. Thank you. So in Kenya, we, we have the international FAD, the local organizations, people like UNICEF, they are so much on it so because of the children. And um, we, organizations like Equality Now, so those are people. So they are funded to do um, workshops and to do community sensitization, yeah.
1: So in our organization, we have a newsletter and we share all the knowledge that we have. We shame the states that haven't had, uh, you know, haven't criminalized FGM uh, we share the uh, all the information that we can get, but we also run up as an as an NGO as uh, activists against how do you estimate how do you know that this is happening mm-hmm. um, so basically we just we're running around in circles, and the best thing for us would have been if the government of the United States would a partner with us, you have to be, as you know, with trafficking, you also have to be aware of which organizations you partner with. Um, if the government were to partner with us and we could get through the legislation and have the resources to educate uh, you know, the teachers, the pediatricians, uh, the gynecologists, all concerned, then I think this could be turned around in... Very quickly. And I honestly, in terms of spending money and where you put your dollars, I think this is a worthy and it, it doesn't cost that much because the populations, um, uh, yeah, the groups of or communities that practice this are not, it's, it's just not that many yet.
0: Oh, Karen, yeah, we'll take it over here. Um,
3: hi, first I want to thank um, Christy. Um, Skinner, my cousin, um, for um, um, organizing um, this event because I think it 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 pushes Hoover um, in the conversation about global human rights. Um, Somehow in the conservative world we've ceded territory on those issues and um, I think it's important um, for the Future of the West project, um, mine of which you're part of, Ayand, and um, some of our other ones like Islamism, that we talk about these issues, but our comparative advantage at Hoover's, not as activists, but as researchers. Right. And I think one way that we can contribute to the conversation is to have a research agenda that links the West and, and more conservative ideas with global human rights, um, and right in, in that vein, and I think it would help in terms of universities and, and students and also just staking out some territory that I think is important. Yeah. Um, any comments you have on that?
1: I fully agree with this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when, so when I came to the Hoover Institution, uh, it was of course made very clear to me, I had been with other think tanks before, that you know what we do is research, and we try to influence policy. So the activism, I had to leave it with the AHA Foundation. Uh, it would be so much easier for me if the AHA Foundation simply became a part of Hoover. In, in, with the explicit understanding that for problems like this, for human rights violations, it's not just enough to do research. You, you have to get to a point where you say we have to eradicate this, we have to stop these practices. And doing only research is, uh, I, I think it's kind of taking a back seat. Yes. Yeah, we know it's a problem, but it's uh, too big of a problem or it's not part of our problem or it's someone else's. Problem, yeah. So you sort of push the problem around without anything happening, yeah. (laughs) That is a risk. Uh, One
3: last question. Yeah, yes. Uh, Thank you all for sharing your time and expertise. Um, I'm Jesse Brunner. I'm with the Honda Center for Human Rights and International Justice here at Stanford. Um, My question, and you touched on this, Ayan, in your comments about your father um, uh, after he'd been educated in the West, Um, but I'm curious, Um, how much of an impact do you feel like the diaspora communities, um, Kenyan diaspora communities, Somali diaspora communities in the U.S. and other wealthier developed nations, as you mentioned, would have then on practices sort of back at home?
1: So what I have seen, again, in the Netherlands and here in the United States is there is, this particular practice is something that is defended with a great deal of passion. So there are individuals with similar backgrounds to Mary's and mine, where we say, we want to stop this, it's horrible, it's going on within our communities, and we should engage both men and women in trying to stop it. But we're also met with a pushback from individuals who are well-resourced and well-educated, surprisingly, who will say, but it is a tradition, and it is who we are, and it's our identity, and we're not going to give this up. So we have to have that confrontation. And that confrontation with the people who are pushing back, they're not only having it with us individuals from within the community, they're going to have it also with the wider society, throwing around epithets like racist, eurocentrist, bigoted, and all the rest of it. And so I think with both the activism has to be toward, you know, changing the minds within the community, empowering white people. men and women, that they're not bigots if they stand up for human rights and empowering um, governments to, uh, you know, informing governments to find the right partners and to set goals and to say, this is something we can, we can actually eradicate it if we wanted to.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ion, for coming in. And Ion
3: came in on her maternity leave to be with us today. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much for that. Yes,
3: yes, and you can check out the ahafoundation.org. Um, thank you, Alice, for
0: moderating it. And thank you, Mary, for being the impetus to get us to talk about this today. And thank you also for your passion to take care of all the children that you do in, in Kenya. And I'm so proud to be associated with each of you women. So, And thank you guys for coming. this podcast is a production of the hoover institution for more podcasts and ideas from the hoover institution please visit hoover.org